I had a series all planned out, and if you've ever just had your plans rearranged, some of you literally have had plans rearranged just this past week. Uh, some of you have had your life turned upside down and things altered in a moment. Well, God loves to do that. Uh, when we're so sure of what we're going to be doing or we're so sure of our plans, God has a way of kind of messing things up for you, does he not? And so even as we were heading down to Jacksonville, I felt God just beginning to just whisper something different in my heart for the message today. And then I got home last night, and I still felt God whispering something different. And I had I've rewritten this message literally probably three times, and I wrote it all over again this morning. So you're getting the freshest, most altered, most I've prayed, and I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, and really, truly sense that God has a word for us as a church, not just for you, although I do believe God wants to minister to you this morning, but as a body, as a body of people, I believe God wants to speak to us this morning. I believe he wants to deposit something in us as a church. You guys ready for that today? Even if you're new to this this morning, you're hearing me talk about people's names or you're, you're hearing us talk about every nation or our spiritual family that we're a part of. The reality is that God has purposes. He's brought us together to accomplish great things. And sometimes to help us get there, we're so sure of our plans, aren't we? And yet God <laughs> rearranges things in ways that you didn't expect. How many of you expected to be living here Go ahead, raise your hand. How many of you planned Kennesaw, Ackworth, Marietta? How many of you thought, this is, where, this is it, this is my plan? No, almost none of you. In fact, unless you're, unless you're not telling the truth, none of you raised your hands, right? It's amazing how we have plans, but it's God's purposes that prevail, is it not? So, let me do this. We're going to pray, and then we're going to go straight into this, and I'm going to bring us to a cruising speed pretty fast. Father, be with us this morning. God, I thank you for the men and women. I thank you for those in college, those in high school, middle school that are here this morning. I thank you for what's happening with our children as they're being taught and discipled here at our church. God, I'm asking even in this moment God, that you would minister specifically to us. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, and I'm asking that you would move powerfully in our midst today. Amen. All right, I'm going to need a little participation this morning. Everybody do this. Say amen. amen. All right, that was good. I was like that. Say, we're going to get real charismatic now. Say hallelujah. hallelujah. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it feel good? I didn't grow up like that, all right? Nobody said anything in church. It was quiet as a mouse. But you know what? There's something contagious when people get excited about what God's doing and what God's done in their life. I love it when people get excited, so excited, in fact, that, that they don't want to keep it to themselves. And that's what I loved about this men's conference and, and getting to go down is it, it, it lights a fresh fire inside of you. Now, one of the other things that gets me excited is when you walk into a room, a huge atrium, and they have an all-you-can-eat wing bar with over 3,000 wings. I mean, the presence of God was just so thick, so heavy. The glory cloud. Laughing aside, 
you, almost every restaurant you go to has has like this little appetizer of wings, does it not? And I want you to know something. It, it, it's rare for me to order wings or even to eat wings at an event like we went to. It's not because I don't love wings. I love wings. But the problem I have is that I'm not really good at just eating two or three wings. I don't ever order an appetizer of wings, especially if I'm going to have to split it with somebody. To get all saucy, get your fingers all janky, you got sauce on your face for just three wings, no way. If I'm going to go, if I'm going to do wings, I'm going to go like all the way. I'm going to go all the way in here. And if you've spent any time, amen, amen to that, hallelujah to that, right? <laughs> if you spent any time with me, I, I, I will be the first to tell you, I sometimes have a little bit of a, an obsessive personality. I am an all-in kind of person. I do not like to have my foot halfway in something and another foot halfway out. I am an all-the-way-in kind of guy. I can be intense. When I'm preaching, I sweat because I'm fully invested in the message. You tracking with me? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I think most people are actually a little bit more all-in than we like to admit. I don't think there's many people that enjoy being, you know, kind of halfway straddling something. We're the kind of people who like to put all of our eggs in one basket. We like that. We enjoy that. We are the kind of people who are drawn to worship something. Why? Because we like to give our time and our energy and our faith to a thing. We understand what it's like to be all in. If you've ever... I mean, here's a perfect example. You ever, you ever walked up a high dive before? Like the high, high dive. Not like the little diving pool diving board. That's, I mean, praise God, that's awesome. But if you've ever done like the big dog one, and you get up there, there's no, ha there's no halfway jumping in here. I mean, you were at the top, and you're literally going through your mind, I could die right now. Even though you're probably not going to, it's just this... It is a full-blown commitment. If you know Pastor Jason in our church, he used to dive competitively. And when I see pictures or video of the high dive, I think to myself, oh my gosh, I'm not even taking the first step up on that diving board. Why? Because I know myself. I'm an all-in kind of person, and I am not all the way in with that. It's not going to happen. And you can guess what we're talking about this morning as we talk about just the natural realities of people, as we talk about a church and a church culture, as we talk about you and your relationship with God, what it looks like to be all in. Turn to the book of Luke this morning. Actually, you know what? I'm going to mix it up. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Because we see Jesus helping people make the shift from having one foot in and one foot out to being the kind of people who are all in with their relationship with Jesus. And it is so easy, church, if you're in, whether you're in Nashville, Tennessee, whether you are in Atlanta, Georgia, whether you are in this Bible Belt kind of culture, it's so easy to be around the things of God, to know the things of God, and yet not be passionately changed or passionate about the presence of God. It's easy to have one foot in and one foot out. 
And so here we are in Matthew 19, and Jesus has an interaction with a man who's called the rich young ruler. We're just going to read the text this morning. Jesus has been preaching, by the way, and he's just crossed over the Jordan River, and a man comes up to him, and this is the guy. He says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What a question. Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shouldn't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus answers the man's question with another question. And we should know right off the bat, although Jesus eventually answers his question, what we are alluding to, or what he alludes to in this moment, right out of the gate is that the man is actually asking the wrong question. Why do you call me good? Hey, good teacher. Hey, good guy, Like I, I notice you're pretty gift, gifted at communication, gifted communicator, gifted rabbi. Could you shed some advice or sh shower me with a little wisdom on this? What do I need to do to get eternal life? Why do you call me good? Because if you can answer that, you're going to have a much easier time answering the heart of this question. I love this story because, to be fair, church, I see myself in this story really easily. It's emotional for me because what God did in my life and what he continues to do in my life in many ways reminds me of what God did to this man here, or at least the conversation that he had with him. Think about this progression. This man is rich. This man is young, and this young man, he has power. He has authority. He's rich, he's young, and he has power. Not only that, he knows the commandments, and he's kept them as best as he can. He knows the law. He knows the Ten Commandments. He, he's probably been to synagogue. He's a good-standing Jew. He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, and frankly, he's been around the things of God, and yet there is something inside of him that is still nagging at him and provoking him to, that he has to get up from wherever he is and track down this Jesus and ask him this question. What must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, he begins to answer him. 
And the young man says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? What am I missing? And if there is a question that I hear this generation and sometimes even our church and our community asking, it is this right here. I have been to church. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I've, I've been around this thing. I, I, I understand it. I get it. And yet I still feel like something is missing. What am I lacking? What am I not getting? God, would you, would, would, would Jesus, would you, good teacher, what do I need to do here? What do I need to do? Isn't that the right question? Or maybe the wrong question? I remember this moment in college for me. I grew up in the church, had amazing parents, fantastic youth ministry. I learned how to, how to follow Jesus and to, and, and to know what was right and to know what was wrong. And I got to college, and I began to read the Bible differently. And, you know, that just begins to happen as you're kind of on your own and you're away from mom and dad. And I'm reading the Bible. I'm attending church, and, and I am, I'm seeing the God that's in the Bible, and I'm wondering why I don't experience the God that I see in scriptures in my own life. I'm wondering why I see the Holy Spirit moving in the, in the scriptures, yet, yet I barely have even been taught about the Holy Spirit, and I'm not even sure that the Holy Spirit moves or has a relationship with, with people anymore. Why is it that I see God moving this way, but I don't experience him moving this way? God, what am I lacking here? What am I missing? If you've ever been to England and you get out of the the subway, there's a little sign that says, mind the gap. Because there, there, there was this gap in the, the God that I read here, but the God that I wasn't experiencing here. God, what am I lacking? And I had friends who went to this crazy church, the passionate church. We won't even get into talking about churches they just lived differently than me. They had a different kind of passion than me. And I would look at them and I would side-eye them and I thought they were weird, but there was a part of me that, that secretly longed to know God the way that they know God. They knew God. I wanted the purpose in my life. I wanted to wake up passionate about a relationship with God. And the reality was, was that God and faith was just kind of boring to me. I attended, I understood what was right and true, but I was lacking something significant. And Jesus tells our man in the scriptures, <laughs> you gotta love it. Go sell everything you have, then come and follow me. And if you read this by the letter, you might think to yourself, well, I guess I need to go sell everything I have so that I can become a Christian. But that is not what Jesus is after in this moment. Jesus is after this man's heart. And Jesus will not compete for the throne of your heart. 
He will not play games with it. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words. There's no one foot in and one foot out. And for this young man, the thing that was the throne of his heart was his possessions. And so Jesus was calling this man to lay it all down so that he could follow him. Now, you and I, you might have something different that's on your heart or that is sitting on the throne of your soul. And I can promise you it may not be possessions, but it might be something else. And if you really want to get real with God and you want to understand this difference, the gap between the God that I read about and the God that I, that I haven't experienced, the difference oftentimes is this thing that sits on the throne of our heart. The thing that we make God in our life. And then we ask ourselves, well, what else do I need to do in order to experience this? Surely I need to do something. Surely I need to go attend more, read more, raise my hands more, get to more conferences more, order more books more. And we have this rat race of trying to get to God. And things that we do to overcome this gap. And it doesn't work that way. Let's back all the way up to the very beginning of Scripture. If you've got a Bible in your hands, turn to Genesis chapter 3 for a minute. Because we're going to see this play out. This isn't something that just happens in 2018 or somehow at the turn of the century. This same principle of people trying to do something to get to God because they realize that there is something missing in their heart or their soul. I have done it. You have done it. Sometimes we still do it. You might be doing it right now. And guess what? You are in the company of many people in Scripture who do the exact same thing. Something is wrong. I know I'm missing something. So surely it's something I can do in my power and strength. Just tell me what it is and I'll do it. If you remember the very first death in all of Scripture, the first death, not just to mention the first murder, but the first death. Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. And Cain... Cain's upset with his brother. I paraphrase. He's jealous. He's bitter. And he murders his brother. And the father heart of God comes and begins to speak with Cain. And he offers him a punishment. He doesn't offer it. He sentences him to this punishment. And he says this in Genesis 3.12. He says, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So the, the, the price of sin is that you're going to do and you're going to work and it is not going to produce what you want it to. And consequently... The more you do and the more you work, the more you are going to wander restlessly. That is the punishment, Cain, that you pay for murdering your brother. This is Cain's response. Verse 13, 
Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. So Cain understood that as God was was sentencing him, that he was no longer going to be able to just easily plant some crops and, and have a living for himself and be able to feed himself. This was now going to become difficult, and he was going to be bound to wander, and that was going to be a restless wandering. He understood something here. God, I, I'm missing your presence here. He connected falsely that doing and God's presence went hand in hand. Bear with me here. Because when we read this, sometimes we, we make the connection that, oh, you know, a man, a man gets his value as he's working and he experiences God's presence in his job and in the doing. And I hear that. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's true or as it should be. And so here we see Cain. I'm no longer going to be able to work and do, and therefore I'm banished from your presence. And what does he go and do? He wanders and he does something that all of us still today try to do. He has a kid and he builds the very first city. The very first town of any kind. And he names it after his son. Cain was building a city, verse 17, and he named it after his son, Enoch. And when you go down the lineage here of Cain, it's not like Cain messed up and then, you know, he helped his sons get on the right path. He could have, but that's not what happened. Because the seed of this problem is planted so deep in Cain's heart. And the very thing as he's trying to equate significance, as he's trying to equate value, as he's trying to equate life with God, he does it by associating it with work. And so when God says that the ground isn't going to yield anything, he begins to wander restlessly. And he's got that wandering heart. And he's got to do something. He's got to do something that will build life. Something that will give a legacy. Something that will give him significance. So what does he do? He builds a city. And to make it even better, he names it after his son. He builds his own empire. He builds his own thing. And that thing is the very thing that he begins to try to draw life out of. And we see it played out in the entire legacy of his family. That by doing, I experience life. And that is not how we experience life. And so what do we see in 2018? We see people trying to build bank accounts to encounter true life. We see pastors even building churches, and if their church just gets to this place, then they'll have 
life. And we have families. I'm not saying that all these things aren't good in their proper place. But even this idea of marriage, if I, once I'm married, well, then I'll encounter, I'll, I'll experience life. If I just have children, well, then I'll have life. Then I'll, I'll, I'll have the fullest, ex- no, you actually won't. Because it doesn't satisfy the hole that's in our heart. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, son, why do you call me good? In other words, if you really know who you're talking to right now, if you understand the good, good father that you're talking to right now, you would understand that life will never come from you doing something. It comes by you being in the presence of the one who dreamed about your life, who birthed you into existence, the one who's working his purposes in your life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you would catch it, I'm not just a good teacher. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. I'm the God who breathed the stars into the sky. I'm the one who was going to die for your sins. This thing that you're lacking is only filled by having relationship with me. George Foreman, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not Mr., you know, some guys watch like the pay-per-view channels and they watch all these fights or they watch all the boxing matches or the cage whatever, I don't even know, right, extreme sports. I'm not, not into it, but it's not something that I like set time apart for, right, but I do love watching some of the old fights, Muhammad Ali, I love the documentaries, Vander Holyfield, George Foreman, some of just the heavyweights, right? I love, I, I love hearing a little bit or reading a bit about their, their stories. And some of you might not know the story of George Foreman. And he has a fight with Muhammad Ali. He loses this fight. But he still makes $5 million from the fight. And at the time, I forget what year it was, it was the largest purse for any losing fighter in the history of boxing. Nobody had ever been paid this kind of money before. And he goes into the, the locker room, and he is, he's self-proclaimed not religious at all. Doesn't believe anything. What he believes in, though, is being nice and being good, being a philanthropist. And he is so defeated and so discouraged everybody out of the locker room and he he wants to be by himself he lost this fight he begins to pray he doesn't even know how to pray but he out of his own mouth you can hear him share the testimony you can youtube it if you want 
he began to make a bargain with God. You ever done that before? God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, if you do this, I promise I'll do this. <laughs> Working deals. One foot in, but I'll keep one out here. But Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus does not compete for the throne of your heart. He doesn't do it that way. And so as Evander, I mean, as George Foreman is praying in the locker room, making a deal with God, a bargain with him, he begins to tell God that I'll, I'll give this amount of money to the poor. I'll do this. I'll fund this much cancer research. If you would just do this and if you would just do this. I don't even know what he was asking God to do. But I know he had all these lists of things. And he says it was like a freight train in the locker room by himself. He felt a voice say to him, I don't want your money. I want you. And he begins to shake and he goes and he takes a shower. And he's crying in the shower. Because he had just had an encounter with God that he couldn't explain. And he literally in the shower begins to shout, hallelujah. He doesn't know how to describe what he has experienced. And his family members come into the locker room and his coaches and his trainers and he looks at them and he says, I just had an encounter with Jesus and I am not who I just was five minutes ago. These crazy people that call themselves born-again Christians, that just happened to me. Jesus just asked me for all of me. And he let everybody know right then and right there that he was all in. And they literally called an ambulance and they took him to the hospital because they thought he had lost his mind. And he has never turned back. He is a preaching evangelist. He's got a great church in Texas. He does a tremendous amount for the poor. And he is an outspoken advocate for Jesus Christ. And he now says out of his own mouth, the greatest fight I've ever fought wasn't in the ring. It was in the locker room. Because Jesus was drawing him not to a place where he just kind of was straddling the fence, but where he understood. It's not about this, 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 and this. And if you can just get all these things right, well, great. Now you've got what we call a four-star relationship with God. No, I don't want any of those things. I want you. I want all of you. And whatever is sitting on the throne of your heart, I'm coming after it. And when I was sitting in college, well, I, I, money wasn't my thing. I was a college student after all. I hadn't have any money. But you know what I did have? Pride. You know what else I was? I was self-righteous. And I remember, I remember God speaking to me. I didn't have an audible voice that sent me to the shower and screaming hallelujah. I didn't have that at all. Would have been helpful at times. Instead, what I had was a bunch of friends 
who began to pray for me and who began to show me the things of God in Scripture. And they just lovingly and graciously began to let the Bible be a mirror to my own life. And I had to have a moment on my knees and in praying where I had to deal with the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. Because what I wanted to do was live my little self-righteous, prideful life of if I just do this and that and this and that, then I'm good and I should be encountering God all I want to over here, except I wasn't encountering God. I was the rich young ruler who looked at his own heart and wondered, what on earth am I still missing? And so in 1604 Shackleford Road, I remember the address. I had a moment where I prayed with a friend. And I jumped off the high dive. And I went all in. I gave God everything. And I don't say that braggingly. I say that to encourage you because I know some of you are sitting here this morning, and this is your conversation. This is the thing that's rattling around in your mind and in your brain. What am I still lacking? Why don't I feel that? Why don't I have any passion? Why does it feel purposeless for me? And what I want to invite you to do is the very thing that God invites everyone to do the rich young ruler to do, me to do, George uh, Foreman, thank you. The very thing that Cain wouldn't do, and it's to stop doing and to just surrender your life to God. It's, it's one of those Christian-isms that can be cheesy and can be a little bit eye-rolling. But it's this idea of giving up and giving in to God. And that's what we're talking about this morning. This is what God decided to wake me up and bother me in my sleep to rewrite this morning. Because for some of us, this is our, this is our thing. This is what we need to do. Not do, experience, surrender, let go of. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 16. If I can get some keys, that would be great. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, that if you are without Jesus, you are without everything that is worth having. And if you are without Christ, if you are without Jesus, there's something that haunts you. That money will never satisfy that a partner will never satisfy. 
that a friend cannot ultimately satisfy. That the new job will not be able to satisfy. Even children will not be able to satisfy. And that is Jesus Christ. His presence filling your life and changing you and marking you. If you are without Jesus, then you are without everything that is worth having. And this morning, what we get to do, you don't have to do it. What you get to do is we get to take all the chips and we get to go all in. You know what it looks like when you're playing cards and you go all in? You're not passive. You're not just casually watching what happens. No, you're on the edge of your seat. Because why? Because you are fully invested in this thing. You want to see how this all works out. You want to see what other things are being played. When you're all in, you're on the edge of your seat. You're, you're, you're fully engaged. You're watching. Your eyes are open. You're not slouched back. You're not sitting. You're not passive. You're, you're not unengaged. That's not what it looks like when you're fully invested and you're all in. That's not what it looks like. And so as we close today, I want to I want to show you. I want to I want to model for you what it looks like when our hearts are pierced to know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. It can look a lot of different ways, but I can tell you the posture is one of humility. It's somebody who's able to get on their knees and say, "God, forgive me." Not, Lord, look what I've done for you, but Lord, I cannot believe that I even have the capacity to have relationship with you. God, I have done this and I have done this. God, thank you for your forgiveness. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for being my savior and changing me and making me new. God, not my power, but your power. God, not my riches, but your riches. God, not my strength, but your strength. God, not my ability, but your ability. This isn't about me. This isn't about what I'm doing. I can't do anything. I cannot do enough. But God, you have already done enough. And so God, thank you. It's your power. It's your ability. It's your strength. That's what it looks like when we are all in. It's not you toting your list. It's not you toting your church attendance. Or how many people you've led to the Lord. Or how great your bank account is. Or how blessed you think you are. That's not it at all. It's Jesus and his presence. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are, Lord. Lord, help me to follow you. Fill my life, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your spirit, Lord Jesus. God, help me to make the right steps, Lord. Help me to hear your voice, Lord. Thank you for your grace kindness in my life.
That's what it looks like, church. Would you stand to your feet this morning? You know what? You can stand to your feet. If you'd rather stay seated, you can do that too. If you want to kneel in your where you are, you can do that as well. I'm going to give all of us a moment to literally just have the needed conversation with Christ our Savior today. Father, we thank you for your presence this morning, and we invite you here today. God, even as you're ministering to the hearts of your church, God, I thank you for overcoming the gap. God, many of us have been asking, and many of us have even been afraid to ask, Lord, why, why don't I experience God this way? Why don't I know him this way? Lord, what we need is more of you. What we need is more of your presence. Less of us and more of you, God. Fill us in this place today. If God's ministering to you today and you just know this is, this is what I need, I need to respond to this. And out of your mouth say, Jesus, thank you for being my Lord. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for changing my life today afresh. Lord, you have complete control. You sit on the throne of my life. Lead me, Lord. Continue to change me, Lord. Make me new, Lord Jesus. Not my strength, but yours. Not my ability, but yours. Not my power, but yours. It's all about you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.